Would you join me in opening up a Bible or the Bible app on your phone to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use a blue uh, pew Bible in front of you, and you'll find Philippians 3 on page 981. Well, there is a phrase uh, in our culture and specifically concentrated on social media that has taken off in the last couple of years. And it's across all platforms. It seems like specifically the social platform Instagram is where you see it the most. And the phrase is hashtag living my best life. It's one of the most common hashtags that people will attach to their pictures that they post. In fact, this past week I typed in into the search function on Instagram, living my best life. And I could, at that moment, scroll through 3,772,313 recent posts. But I had a sermon to write. <laughs> you, type, you're, you type living my best life into Google, and instantly there are 6.1 billion results filled with articles and accounts and websites dedicated to living your best life. Uh, this phrase is not new, but it's this recent surge, um, believe it or not, came from uh, the hip-hop world, from certain tracks within that different uh, rappers and hip-hop artists were releasing, uh, specifically 2018, Cardi B's tract entitled Best Life. If you ever thought Cardi B would never make it into a sermon <laughs> introduction, there you go, do not Google her. Um, and then from there, it took off into different kind of hip-hop tracks, and then it started influencing the culture, and then it starts shaping people's presence and social media presence to the point now where that phrase is more popular than the songs where it originated from. Here's the interesting thing about living my best life. The only thing these posts and pictures have in common are the phrase, because the pictures themselves are, could not be more across the board. You have someone on vacation, you've seen these pictures, you've probably taken one, they're atop of the mountain, the camera's behind them, they're overlooking a lake, hashtag living my best life. And then you see the next picture, it's somebody sitting on their couch in sweatpants looking at the bottom of an empty ice cream carton, <laughs> hashtag living my best life. After that, you have someone laying in an infinity pool, of course, hashtag living my best life. After that, you have somebody who's dancing like an idiot, alone at a wedding, hashtag living my best life. It seems to me in my untrained social media eyes that the phrase literally means whatever you want it to mean. Everyone decides for themselves what their best life ought to be. Um, which, by the way, that's the dark secret of social media and Instagrams that everyone projects their best life which spreads envy and depression and bitterness, and the studies keep coming out more and more and more. The more involved we are there, the more prone to depression we are, because our lives are not like their lives. But when it comes to my best life in this culture, I get to decide for me. And it might be at the top of the mountain, it might be at the bottom of a peanut butter ice cream carton, but it's my call. Which, in a nutshell, I think that defines and captures the most important doctrine of our culture today. I decide for me. And it's about me, and it's about finding myself, and it's about loving my life and myself. I cannot love others unless I love myself. That's the way it is. My question, is that the way it should be? Further, does the Bible, 
thousands of years before. This became a hashtag phenomenon on Instagram. Does the Bible have anything to say about living your best life? It probably will not shock you that I believe it does. And I think we're going to get to the heartbeat of what God says is your best life in our passage in Philippians this morning. If you're just joining us, we are now halfway through this short letter from the Apostle Paul to the Church of Philippi. I'm already missing this book, and we're not even done with it yet. Um, And I wish we spent six months here. Anyway, in typical fashion, Paul is managing to write a little but say much. And I just want to encourage you, church, this morning on this rainy day in October, the Lord has a word for us this morning. And I ask that you buckle up and dial in. Philippians 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read them all up front this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul transitions from the end of chapter 2, where we ended last week, where he gave three godly examples of people to imitate, finishing, finishing with Epaphroditus, the one who's going to take this letter he's writing, he's going to bring it back 800 miles back to the city of Philippi, to the church there. And he says, finally, which could be an indication that he is wrapping this letter up. And in doing so, Paul commits the crime of every preacher of all time, saying, finally, when in reality, he's only halfway done. (laughs) Commentator tells a story of a young son who was starting to listen in church, and he leans over to his father and says, Dad, the pastor says finally in his message every week. What's he mean by that? And the dad just mutters back, absolutely nothing, son. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. So this could mean Paul is about to wrap this letter up, which also explains why he started talking about Epaphroditus, who's going to bring this letter back to the church of Philippi. And then as he's writing, he just realizes he's got more to say. That's possible I don't think that's simply the reason because finally could also be translated um, well then or so. It's kind of a transition word. But the important part is that he returns back to this phrase, rejoice 
in the Lord. The phrase rejoice in the Lord is the refrain that keeps everything glued together in his letter. Uh, You go back to chapter 2.18, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in the Lord. And then he shifts to give these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Then 3.1, he says, finally rejoice in the Lord. And he shifts to examples 2, as we'll see in a moment, now pretty stark warnings. And then he'll close out this section in chapter 4, verse 4, when he'll say again, rejoice in the Lord. Always, I will say again, rejoice, before then giving his actual final instructions. So rejoicing in the Lord is the hinge on the door as he moves from room to room in this letter. It's his transition. It's what he keeps coming back to. It's his refrain in every thought. Rejoice in the Lord. I said in the first week in this series that joy or rejoice is going to come up every week in this series. And it's not because I'm trying to insert it, but those words, joy or rejoice, show up 16 times in four chapters. That God calls us to be filled with joy in all circumstances. Uh, James Boyce, the famous Presbyterian preacher who was down to 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia before retiring, he calls joy the, quote, birthright of all believers. Love that. And in his definition of joy was being to delight in God and God's goodness. And no matter your circumstance, even in suffering, maybe you could say especially in suffering, we can delight in God because he is the one guarantee we have in this life. And he is all that we need. Uh, joy is what Jesus himself was after when he told his disciples shortly before leaving, shortly before dying on the cross, he says this, quote, these things I've spoken to you, meaning all things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus' desire before he left is that his joy would be in us so our joy would be in him But not only does he desire that, this isn't just kind of some ethereal hope he has, like I hope you guys get it, but he actually is the guarantor of that joy. Paul tells us in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with joy. God fills you with joy. He wants that for you. He fills it for you. May God fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the, quote, same thing Paul says. It's no trouble for him to say again and again. It is no trouble for me to say to you, rejoice in the Lord. And it is safe for us because joy in the Lord is the ultimate safeguard. It's the ultimate bulletproof vest against the brutality of life that we have. And from here, he gives a trifold warning First point this morning, that from that transition, Paul drastically changes his tone in verse 2. And he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And it's a dramatic shift in this letter. Up to this point, Paul has been uh, just gushing over the church of Philippi, how thankful he is for them, what he's hearing. He's gushing over Timothy and Epaphroditus, examples to follow, and now he flips it, and in a verse, his tone shifts. And he gives them a pretty stark warning of those the church needs to watch out for and defend against. So who's he talking about? 
Well, those he considers dogs and evildoers and flesh eaters are three ways to describe one group of people that Paul has in mind. It's one group of people that has plagued him most in his missionary journeys. It's a group known as the Judaizers, who have sought, are seeking to derail his planting of churches and gospel-centered ministries throughout the book of Acts. Uh, These Judaizers were so-called Jewish Christians. Interesting, his biggest threat was not the empire of Rome. It was people who called themselves Christians. Church, take note. And these so-called Jewish Christians were requiring Gentile converts, okay, non-Jewish converts, to submit to the Mosaic law, which was the law that ruled the Jewish people before Jesus came. So this law, which comes up again and again in the New Testament, includes food restrictions and dietary restrictions, um, and most notably, male converts were required to get circumcised according to Jewish law after becoming a Christian. So to be clear here, you have men from Jewish descent who, is like Paul and the apostles, were Jewish men. These men believed in Jesus, believed he was God, believed he died on the cross, believed he was raised from the dead, like Paul and the apostles. They believed that they required faith in Jesus to be saved, like Paul and the apostles. We're good so far. But they add on a requirement to submit to the Jewish customary laws. And that addition, however small it might seem, they have all these other things in common, that one addition destroys the gospel altogether. And it drew the anger of Paul. These Judaizers is what caused the first council of the early church in Acts chapter 15. Because all the apostles, that's the church is starting to spread like wildfire. They're getting all this kickback as to, okay, all these people in these kind of Gentile cities who are not Jewish and they're coming to faith in Christ, do they have to adhere to our Jewish customs? That was the question. And so the apostles called the council and they had a discussion and they had to hash this out. They knew we got to decide this now. They had to decide if non-Jewish converts had to be circumcised after conversion and adhere to Jewish law. And it's at this point that they hear all the sides, and Paul speaks, and Peter speaks, that James is the one who declares. In Acts chapter 15, verse 19, this is a watershed moment in the early church, that Gentiles do not need to adhere to the Jewish law. Because Jesus fulfilled that law, and now they're in the new covenant, and it was established that salvation came by faith alone. But these Judaizers didn't really care. They didn't stop. They remained in their false teaching. They remained a thorn in Paul's side. And they put forward this false gospel where they would approach cities after Paul left and begin teaching a false gospel, begin challenging the church leaders, begin shifting their focus. This happened in the city of Galatia. It's the reason for the letter Galatians in your Bible. Paul starts out on fire in that letter, saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So this is a big deal. So now we come back to Philippi chapter 3. Paul knows this church is young. It's about 10 years old at this point. They're, They're vibrant and they're growing in the faith. But Paul knows sooner or later these Judaizers are going to show up. 
sooner or later, they're going to start infiltrating the congregation and promote this false gospel. And there's going to be so much in common that the church is going to go, it sounds good. But then this little addition is going to get leaked into their doctrine. And so Paul calls them dogs. I got to be careful here. Right? This means something different in the first century than it does in the 21st century. I know there's a lot of dog lovers in our congregation. Don't storm the stage. Don't submit, to, submit me to PETA. All right? I will not ever say a bad word about a dog. That will put my life on the line more than anything else, I think, in the church in 2019. But you got to understand, first century, there's no pets in Palestine. There's no house dogs. Dogs were coyote-like scavengers that were the image of the unclean. And you notice what Paul is doing because it was the Jews who always referred to non-Jews as dogs. It was their way of saying, we're clean, we're the Jews, everybody who's not Jewish, unclean, dogs. So Paul flips it on them. He says, they are the true dogs. They are unclean. They are outside the promise of Christ because they're promoting a false gospel. So watch out for them. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Obviously, they are referring to their requirement of circumcision for salvation. Trifold warning. And he follows that immediately with a trifold reminder. You have three warnings. And then he gives you three reminders beginning in verse 3. And in the beginning of verse 3, if you look down at your Bible, it's more significant than you might first assume how he begins it. Because Paul says, for... He's about to tell you why I'm warning you of that. For we are the circumcision. It's kind of an important part of that passage. It's a plural pronoun, we, meaning Paul, who is Jewish, and the mainly Gentile church at Philippi are together. And Paul says we are together in this. We are the true circumcision. We are partners in the gospel. We are co-laborers in the kingdom of God. Ethnicity does not separate us before God. In Christ, we are the true circumcision because the true circumcision is that of the heart, being set apart as the people of God, which happens by receiving God's grace through faith. This is what the Old Testament physical sign of circumcision was conveying the whole time, was pointing to something, to a people of God who were marked out and ultimately Paul goes deep into this in Galatians and Romans about how Abraham was saved by faith. He was never circumcised. That was before the Mosaic Law even came into play. So how was Abraham saved if you had to be circumcised? That's his line of reasoning. He says, we are the circumcision because it was always pointing to faith. It doesn't matter what nation you're born into. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or the norms of your culture. In Christ, we are all one. And this alone ought to have been enough to tear down the long and debased history of racism in our world, especially in the West, in our own country. And yes, it was Christians who led the abolishment movement. You've probably heard that. It was Christians who led the charge of saying this is not right, that it's true. But the reality is most Christians justified racism and slavery through the Bible. Most Christians, for the majority of history, justified slave trade, uh, 
slavery, Jim Crow laws, systematic discrimination solely on the basis of race. And racism is sin. And it is anti-gospel. And it destroys the gospel wherever it surfaces in our culture and even in our own hearts. And it needs to be called out and it needs to be repented of. And hear me, especially a majority white church, just listen to me as a white pastor. Even if we do not struggle with racism in our own hearts or own our church, it is our job to call it out wherever we see it. Especially in other white Christians. And Paul most clearly states this and the reasoning for it in Galatians 3, 27. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are the circumcision. And then he gets into this trifold reminder. Paul reminds them of the signs. If you truly understand the gospel, here are the signs. Number one, we worship by the Spirit of God. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a new creation. And upon putting your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and it makes you a worshiper of the one true God. I've said this over and over again. All people are worshipers. Everybody you see is a worshiper. We all worship something. The matter is, and the question is, what? For those who are in Christ, by the Spirit within us, we're able to worship the one true God. When we talk about conversion, it's primarily a conversion of worship. And from here, all of life becomes worship. That's number one. Number two, we glory in Christ Jesus. The second sign. The worship of God inwardly, what God does in our hearts, leads to outwardly glorifying God, exalting God, making much of him. The, the, the reason that the core of our vision statement is glorifying God, we don't think we're catchy with that. We don't think we're overly creative with that. We do that because that is the only vision of a church, to glorify God, because this is the natural outflow of a people who have been saved, to make much of him, to live in such a way where all we do is to boast in who he, he is, and, and to bear witness to the fact that he has brought us from darkness and he's brought us into the light and now we live for him. That's what it is to glorify God. And so for those who are new creations, everything we do is connected to that. Paul says this most, I think, plainly in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. There's nothing that we can't do to the glory of God. Number three, put no confidence in the flesh. Third sign, you understand the gospel. You put no confidence in the flesh. Again, he's carrying forward this point on circumcision to make the bigger point that any outward law, any outward tradition, any outward action will do nothing to contribute to your salvation. Nothing outside the body can give us confidence because salvation is a work of the heart. It's being a new creation based upon the work of Jesus Christ applied to us. And from here, Paul pulls out his resume to prove his point. He goes, but if you want to talk outward confidence, 
If you want to talk about boasting in self towards self-righteousness, let's go. Let's do it. I will put my pedigree up with any of yours or any of the Judaizers. And he proceeds to list both his privileged status and his prized accomplishments. He starts with a familiar theme. He goes, oh, you want to talk about being circumcised? Yep, circumcised on the eighth day. Just as the law requires. I am in the people of Israel. Not only that, the tribe of Benjamin, which was the only tribe to align with the tribe of Judah when the kingdom split in two. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. When it comes to status, it does not get more Jewish than me. And then he goes through his accomplishments. He goes to Mosaic Law. I was a Pharisee. Pharisee being the most revered and respected group of Jewish leaders. There was about 6,000 total in Israel. He goes, you want to talk zeal and passion? I was chasing down Christians. I was persecuting the church. I couldn't stand them. I wanted to root them out. I gladly held the coat to the guys stoning Stephen when they killed him and made him the first martyr. I wanted to throw him into prison and see as many, I mean, imprisoned at best, if killed, even better. You want to talk zeal? I got zeal. As to righteousness under the law, no one better. Cream of the crop. Paul was at the peak of his powers as a Pharisee. You want to talk confidence? I had confidence. And then verse 7. The beginning of verse 7 has maybe the most glorious biblical word. It's three letters. But. But is a great word in your Bible. It's a word of grace. There is no word that stronger exemplifies what God does than the word but. And Paul puffs up his own resume, blows hot air into it, just to build it up to the point where he can stamp rejection on the whole thing. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul brings us to his moment on the Damascus Road. The road he was traveling to search out Christians in order to throw them in jail. And the road where he encountered Christ for the first time. It was on the Damascus Road where Paul saw with the eyes of his heart, by God's grace, that his own works in this life count for nothing when it comes to salvation where he saw for the first time that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that brings salvation to his soul. Damascus Road was his aha moment. Damascus Road is where he lost confidence in himself and gained the confidence in Christ. And the heartbeat of this entire passage I think comes at the beginning of verse 10 when he says that I may know him. At the heart of Christianity, there is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that you may know him. And, and we got to be honest, our English language does not help us too much here when it comes to knowing something. Because you can use that word in a whole bunch of different ways. You can know something in an intellectual way. Through rigorous study, high school students, you can know calculus, and then you'll forget it a year later. But you can know it temporarily. 
You can know something in an understandable way where something says something to you like, hey, it's going to be raining on the way to church today. You can say, I already knew that. You can know information. You can know something in a recognizable way. You can know about something or someone. So hear me, you can know about Jesus. You can know about the meanings of Christmas and Easter. You can know about the cross. And you can know about the empty tomb and the resurrection. And you can know about them. But then there is a no that is an intimate no. There's a no that's a relationship, a personal, day-by-day, affectionate relationship. And we're first cued into this early in your Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, there's the first marriage between Adam and Eve. We're told in chapter 4, verse 1, that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And this marriage union, the intimacy within it, is primarily to represent and point to the relationship between Christ and his church. And Paul is crystal clear that this relationship comes by faith and faith alone. Faith is the human role in salvation. The definition of faith is believing in someone or something and acting upon it. And this faith in the people of God comes by grace. You cannot believe if he does not first bestow his grace upon you and reveal himself. God's grace enables us to put our faith in him and saving faith If you're going to say, I'm saved and I'm a believer, here's what you're saying. You believe that God is perfect and we are not. And because we're not perfect, we should be eternally separated from him. If you say that you have saving faith, you believe that God loves us despite our sin and he acted upon that love by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to remove our sin by dying on the cross. If you say, I'm saved, I'm a believer, you believe that by grace we can put our faith in this Jesus Christ and experience the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. Do you believe this? This is the offer to all who have ears to hear that we can be restored in Christ by faith, that we too can have our Damascus Road moment where we count our whole resume as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's some of you, you've known about this for a long time. You've been around, but something for some reason is holding you back. That there's some part of your resume that you want to hold on to. And the offer before you that Paul puts clearly is that you can count that all as loss and that's the best news in the world. Because then you gain Christ, and your faith is in him alone. This is salvation. Can you say this morning that you know him? Not just know about him, but that you know him as your Savior and Lord. You know, Paul was worried about the Judaizers in the first century. From what I know, from what I can tell, there's no groups pushing Christians to be put under the Mosaic Law anymore. Maybe there is. The world's a weird place. But make no mistake, just because the Judaizers and their false gospel is not relevant, this warning still stands today. Because the bigger point is that anything outside the core doctrine of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, anything outside of that is a false gospel. 
Any message that detracts from that, any message that adds to that, it destroys the gospel in full. And this is Paul's main focus throughout the whole New Testament. When he was departing from his fellow elders in Ephesus chapter 20, he he says, I'm probably not going to see you again. And this is our final words to the elders there. It'll be on the screen, 28 to 30 of Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. One of the primary jobs of an elder in the local church, including Grace Church, is to protect the flock from false teaching. To care for your soul, to pray for you, to help you follow Jesus, and to defend against any false gospel that might come into Grace Church to protect the flock. And this is today, 2019, depending on how you look at it, this is both easier and harder than it was for the Church of Philippi. It's easier in the sense that we have the assurance of the gospel and its survival 2,000 years later, that the church has spread and it is spreading, and we have the assurance that we can stand on 2,000 years of history of men and women who have stayed faithful to the gospel, and we can have that greater confidence that the church will stand. But it's harder in the sense that in the church today, we are exposed to more false gospels every single day than they face in Philippi. Because we just know more about the world. We have information at our fingertips. There is false gospels in our lives, in our minds, every single day. You're here one hour a week. Hour 15 minutes, all right? But there's a lot more hours that you get exposed. And the most dangerous, hear me, just hear me close. The most dangerous false gospels are the ones that are the closest to the truth. Things like the prosperity gospel. Things like the social gospel. So just for starters, if any word is attached to the word gospel, it's not the gospel. If you add to it, you destroy it. And as a pastor, I cannot even if I tried warn you against every false teacher out there, every false gospel out there. Because the most dangerous ones are the ones who are going to call themselves Christians and then promote a false gospel. But the only thing we can do, and we will do, and we do do, is week after week to preach and know the gospel so well as a church that we recognize when a false gospel is being taught. You know, when the FBI was formed across the FBI's history, one of, if not the biggest challenges it's had is identifying counterfeit money that's in circulation. It's currently estimated that $61 million of fake money is currently in circulation in the U.S. When you pay $20 for your brownie today at the bake sale, (laughs) just make sure it's real money, all right? We're doing good work here at Grace Church. But when the FBI trains its agents, they do not go through, hey, here's all the ways fake money could be made because they would never be able to keep up. It trains its agents to know the real dollar so well that they'll be able to recognize anything that's not the real thing. In the same way, disciples of Jesus, not just the pastors, not just the elders, but members of a church 
need to understand the gospel so well that Jesus is the prize himself and not just the means to something greater that we can recognize when we're getting, not getting the real thing. Well, Paul moves from this trifold warning to the climax of the passage in some ways of the whole letter itself, the trifold reminder in Christ. And now we finish, finally, with a trifold application, and this will be quick. Three ways to apply this that Paul gives us. And I'll say this, Paul affirms that knowing Christ and making him known is living your best life. A cross-centered life is the best life. It's the most fulfilling life. It's a life that glorifies God, and there is nothing better. Hear me, there's an easier way to live than this. There's a far more comfortable way to live than this, but there's no better one. This is the best life, to know Christ and to make him known. And when we see that Jesus is supremely valuable as our biggest gain, Paul tells us there's three things we can do. One, we can know and live in the power of the resurrection. So at this point, a couple minutes from the close, you might say, okay, this was a very theological sermon. And it's useful. Yeah, it was good to know. But my life is still a mess. My marriage is still falling apart. Financials are still in chaos. I was broke when I came in. I'm going to be broke when I leave. I'm still feeling depleted by life for any number of reasons. I need something more than this. And my loving reminder is that if you know him, you are invited to walk in the power of Christ's resurrection. And that is the application you need no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. Because for all the powers in this world, including whatever powers may be pushing you down, there is no power that can match the power of Jesus Christ being raised again. There's no power that can match the power of a dead man coming back to life. And that same power can live in you. And you can walk in it. And you can rest in it. And it can give you the power to persevere, to rejoice in his goodness, to have Christ magnified in you, to equip you to trust in him and do the next thing. There's always the next thing. And you can walk in that. Number two, we can share in his sufferings. Here's the breathtaking beauty of the Christian life. The more we become like Christ the more we can handle suffering and the more we can experience joy in the midst of them. No other worldview has this stance. No other religion has this stance. This is uniquely given to the believer that we can share in Christ's sufferings because we know the power of the resurrection. For Jesus, the suffering preceded the resurrection. But Paul just flipped it. Did you notice that? For followers of Jesus, the power of the resurrection precedes the suffering and it provides us the strength to endure it. And then third, we can experience a preview of eternity. Paul closes the whole discussion with the assured hope that we too will be resurrected and our new creation will not only be a spiritual reality, it will be a physical reality with new bodies that will never break down. Emotionally, 
physically, spiritually. And this life, we have a preview. It's just a preview. It's just a taste. But when you see a preview of a great movie, you get just that two-minute clip. It's just a fraction of the real thing, but it's enough to get you excited for what's coming. So in this life, as a believer, you get a taste. And in our relationship with Christ, it's a taste of what's to come, but it's enough to equip us to hang on. Christ is enough. And that movie, when it comes, will never end. A false gospel says, if you believe in Jesus, then you will get your best life. The real gospel says, Jesus is your best life. Hashtag that. Let's pray.